You're tuned into How to OT, making research more accessible and more consumable for the occupational therapy practitioner. Here's your host, Matt Brandenburg. On today's episode of How to OT, we talk with Dr. Diane Smith about her non-traditional OT journey, summarize some of her research on advocacy and policy, and go over recommendations for increasing work participation, adaptive child care, sustainability and climate change, and emergency preparedness. Let's get to it. Today, I am joined by Dr. Diane Smith, who is a professor in occupational therapy at the MGH Institute of Health Professions in Boston, Massachusetts. Dr. Smith is an AOTA fellow, uh, an associate editor of the American Journal of Occupational Therapy, and a licensed OT. Thank you for being on the show today. Thank you for asking. Yes, of course. Now, Diane, you've had a pretty impressive and a unique career as an OT, um, including having jobs as the chair of occupational therapy at Mizzou, administrative roles at Health South Rehab in Florida, and even as a consultant to Walt Disney World. Um, how did you manage to have such an interesting career path? Well, um, I know I look at my CV and I get really tired when I look at it. <laughs> but um, I think that that's one of the really great things about occupational therapy is that you can do so many things under the umbrella of, of you know, and still say, well, it is occupational therapy. And um, I think when I originally got into occupational therapy um, that I wasn't quite sure where I fit in, sort of where my niche was. And, you know, I did the typical field work. This is back when you could only needed a bachelor's degree. And, um, and so I think I was, my personality is kind of restless anyway. And so I worked a couple of sort of traditional OT jobs. And then, then I, I sort I sort of just kind of took some risks and, and, you know, the worked a bit and, kind of sought out opportunities and jumped on them when they came along. And I think your, um, your chair, your current chair, Lisa said it really well once when she was talking to one of our classes was, you know, don't, you know, it's not always just say no. Sometimes you should do the just say yes. And so, um, so it's the administrative roles. A lot of them just happened because of attrition. Um, OTs would leave and I would be like the, most senior person <laughs> so it sort of happened by default and then um the um the consultant with washu or i'm sorry walt disney world happened because i was working i was working at health south in orlando at the time and we were getting um we had a, a work hardening program and we were getting a lot of people who were injured at disney and and I was thinking to myself, um, why don't they have their own old, uh, their own OT uh, there on site? And I, you know, researched it, and this was pre-internet, so I noticed that they had PT, but they didn't have OT, and I was like, well, that's wrong. <laughs> and so, um, <laughs> so I am with my typewriter because again, that was pre, um, pre even really computers. Um, too wow. much. I, I sent them. I, bit, right. I sent them um, a, a thing saying, you know, you should have OT and you know that kind of thing. And they amazingly wrote me back and said, okay, I'm coming for an interview. And 
I interviewed with the the Walt Disney World PT at the time, and they're like, sure, let's have an OT. So that's kind of how that happened. And so, so I think, and then and then everything else sort of happened. I decided to go back um, to the Midwest, and I came to WashU, and I worked at. Um, uh, I ended up again. My boss left, and I ended up doing um, so, uh, managing some services at Barnes. Um, it was Barnes then. Barnes Jewish um, and um, Carolyn Baum. Um, they paid for for me to finish my master's degree, and um, so I started doing some teaching then. And I sort of really fell in love with teaching. So when I was finished with my um, a master's degree, my post professional master's, I taught for a long time, and then um, really really liked that a lot. And then you know, decided to go back and get my PhD so that I could remain in academe and then moved around and, and, uh, um, ended up again in administrative position at Mizzou and then sort of woke up one day and said, I think I want to work someplace different and moved to Boston. <laughs> so, so it's kind of like, I think it's because maybe the good and bad of it is that there are so many opportunities and, and that's why it's such a great profession and um, it's kind of grabbing at them. And I think the more, more often that you can grab the opportunities and, and it turns out okay, that then, then you're, you have a little bit more confidence to then grab additional opportunities. And so I try to, try to sort of remain with a mantra of like, what's the worst thing that could happen, you know? And with, um, I mean, certainly nothing illegal or anything, but, um, <laughs> you know, what's the worst thing that could happen? And so there's like this whole world out there that, that doesn't know what OT does and that, you know, we kind of, so a lot of like my doctoral students, a lot of the projects I have here are sort of non-traditional because I see OT as much larger than sort of just the clinical aspect to it. And so, so like I said, I, I kind of, my career, I, I, like you said, I'm sort of the poster child for everything you could do with OT, <laughs> but, um, but, but I think it's really great. And I try to like, try to tell that to OTs and, and, and if they're struggling when they're in their program, our, our students are, I've been teaching for a long time now. It's like, I don't know what I want to be as an OT. And it's like, you don't have to know yet because, you know, go out and see what the opportunities are and sort of make your own if you want to. And, sort of that's I think that's a long answer to what you asked but but that's kind of it's so sort of like it's sort of built on built on itself and um so you know I don't you know I, I never kind of say oh I'm not going to do that in OT because you know you never know so that was a long answer to that yeah <laughs> a long answer but a great answer and one I really yeah. appreciate being a student and you know I do get that question all the time about what I want to do in OT and I still don't know so it, it's very helpful to kind of have your perspective and, and your shared experience to, to feel like it's okay to not know. Um, just as long it, as it is okay. Yeah. <laughs> Cause who knows what's going to happen with healthcare, you know, and, and it's very, very different from when um, I started practicing when, when OT was much more medical model than it is now. And um, you know, the, you know, people, it's, you know, people aren't in an acute care as long, acute inpatient care as long as they were. And so, you know, practice had to change. And then, you know, you know, with all the different legislation, practice keeps changing. And then recently with all the um, value-based kind of thing, it's changing again. And, and so 
you know, you kind of have to ride the wave and sort of see where it's going. And, and you know, there's always going to be a need for occupational therapy services. It just may look different. Um, and that's okay. Awesome. Thank you for that. I think stressing the importance of, you know, saying yes and riding the wave is, is a great takeaway for our listeners. <laughs> I was hoping now we could dive into some of your current research interests. Um, okay. I know some of them are related to health policy, um, mm-hmm. disability policy, uh, related to access for persons with disability to employment and education, and also communication for vulnerable populations and healthcare environments. What kind of led you to these current uh, focuses that you have in your research? Okay. Um, I think sort of seeing problems that I thought OT could address that were being addressed by other healthcare professionals um, that I really, like I was saying before, that you know people don't know what we do. And so I, I think that we have a very unique focus um, by looking at, you know, what are the issues that people are, fa- or that, you know, people meaning individuals or populations or, you know, the community, um, what issues they're facing and sort of looking at them in not a very, in a, not in a linear way, but in a more um, complex way. And, and I think that that is how OTs think is that you're looking at, you know, what are the issues these, that people are facing. Um, and, and when I say environment, when I'm looking at environment, I look at upon that also very, in a very complex manner. And so a lot of my research is really focused on, on what I consider a lot of the, the E, the environment. <laughs> and, yeah. um, and so to me, policy is a huge part of the environment. Um, I wish that, you know, maybe OT focused on a little bit more, <laughs> um, but but, you know, it's like I tell the students, you can create all the treatment plans you want to, but if the, you know, policy or the legislative reimbursement only allows you 10 visits, then, then you know, you have to adjust. And um, you have to think about the people who are left behind. And so it's really kind of mutated from, from sort of that focus to, to way more into like social justice kind of thing. So the policy stuff really started a lot with, um, well, actually my very first, um, when I was getting my bachelor's degree, we had a research class. So we had to do research publicate or we had to do research presentations. And so I looked at architectural barriers to people like with employment. And a lot of that had to do with my own personal experience uh, with my mom who had a stroke when my sister and I were born and she had a lot of issues with architectural barriers and I remember it really really well and that kind of like focused my passion for it and so I did that in my bachelor's degree way back then and then I revisited it with my dissertation for my PhD that I got in public policy and um, in looking at the Americans with Disabilities Act and whether or not I it made um, an impact on employment because um, we just had to pick one part of the ADA and essentially I found it hadn't <laughs> at that point because so much of the policy is not enforceable even though I mean they put ramps places and stuff you can't really legislate attitude and um, so then that just kind of spun off to like uh, I had a really good mentor in my PhD program she, um, she uh, 
she's now a provost at University of Oregon. She's not an OT, but she thinks like an OT. So a lot of my research has to do with helping people access the resources that they need, um, not only to access healthcare, but an employment, but other things that are super important in their lives. And so whether that's policy, whether that's architectural barriers, whether it's reimbursement, whether or not it's communication, health literacy, so that they can access services because they understand now what it is that they need to do because so many people don't. That's kind of, it, it seems broader than it is, but it's all sort of with the same goal that just kind of help people access what they need to do in order to like perform their occupations that are meaningful. So does that make sense? It makes perfect sense to me, um, and it's it's really interesting research. I love the focus on on access. Um, one thing you mentioned was how OTs maybe sometimes don't emphasize the environment as much as we can. Um, and I wanted to ask you a, a follow up question on that: is how do you recommend practitioners can approach treatment with a client with a focus on the environment and their ability to access all these important resources? Well, I think that as a practitioner or even as a student doing field work, because um, it starts there a lot of the time, I think that unfortunately because of the you know, reimbursement structures that we have, you don't have a whole lot of time to think about that. But I think a lot of it is asking questions about people's environment and not just like how many stairs do you have to get into your house. But, but asking larger questions, which of course requires some time, but, but really focusing on, okay, so you're this person with a stroke and whether you have the same stroke as somebody else, and, but if you live in an apartment in an urban area, area versus you live in a ranch in a rural area and you have like family here and you don't have family here, I mean, those are all like super important questions. And I, I think that, that a lot of it is just, sort of looking beyond the, the diagnosis and, and sort of seeing where people are landing and, and sort of where they're going to go beyond your sessions. And I think it's always important to, under, to do the health literacy part to, to make sure that people actually are understanding what you're asking them to do or what other people have and like asking questions. But then also looking at, are they going to go back to work? Are they going to go back to school? And, and what kind of supports environmentally that they might need? And then helping them find those resources. Awesome. Those are some, some great recommendations on specific things to ask for um, and really mm -hmm. apply to any occupational therapy setting. So thank you for that. I, I wanted to bring up now uh, a specific publication of yours from 2017. It was a literature review called Evidence-Based Interventions for Increasing Work Participation for Persons with Various Disabilities. Uh -huh. um, and I wanted to ask you, what motivated you to conduct a systematic review on this subject? Okay. So um, the ADA was, um, it was celebrating its 25th anniversary then. And um, so for the State of the Science at the AOTA conference, uh, because I do some, I did a lot of stuff with the with Americans with Disabilities Act and with Access. 
Julie Bass approached me to do the state of the science, be one of the people to do the state of the science. And so we, with Joy Hamill, who's at UIC, and um, so we kind of had a call and split up some of the ADA. And so I grabbed a bunch of students that were interested and had taken my elective. And um, so both of the, so they told us to do, so I guess my answer is they told us to do systematic reviews on these two areas. So that's what motivated me is I was told that that's what we need to do. So, so it was a really great process. And actually I think Carolyn, um, recommended my work for the state of science. So I have to give her kudos for that. Um, but, but it was really an interesting process because I pulled about, I pulled four of my students, um, who agreed to do it with me. And so, um, it was actually the first time I had done a full systematic review. So, so it was very interesting and it, and, and always enlightening to see how much OT literature is not there. Um, so we really searched beyond the OT literature, which is typically what you have to do with systematic reviews anyway. And, and I had done some work before as far as um, looking at barriers to employment. So that's probably how I ended up doing that. So that's kind of what motivated me to do it. Then, then we got more and more into it and kind of looked at, you know, what, you know, not only what's out there, but what, um, what's not out there and what OTs, you know, research wise and practice-wise, um, can do to increase work participation once they've had various types of disabilities. And we had to actually split it apart by types of disabilities because some adaptations you would make for somebody with a mental health issue or with an intellectual disability would be different than somebody with like a spinal cord injury. So... Yeah, that's what motivated me. <laughs> motivated me to because I was going to do the state of the science. So that was my motivation. <laughs> yeah, there you go. That's a that's a strong motivator. Um, I would mm -hmm. guess. What what did you find in in this literature review? Were some of the most supported or effective interventions for increasing work participation? So so again, we split it up by um, uh, sort of general areas of disability, although understanding that people are people and it, and it doesn't necessarily one size fits all, which is why we split it up that way, but realizing that you can have a spinal cord injury and a mental health disability and that kind of thing. So when we, when we were looking at the literature for people with, there was the most literature there was what had to do with people with mental health issues. Interestingly enough, I would have thought it would have been more like ramps and stuff, but it had to do with as far as work, it had to do with things like looking at supported employment versus like sheltered workshops and which was better. And so they really talked about um, supported training being a whole lot better, like prior than sheltered workshops prior to and during and after placements and working a lot with VR counselors. And then some of it had, uh, there's um, some increasing literature on people transitioning who have autism spectrum disorder because because a lot of those people are you know they're they're aging out of education so they have to find jobs and so there's a lot more literature coming out about autism spectrum disorders and so what they talk about with them has to do more with like job simulation training and use of assistive technology especially apps so um, that's something certainly that practitioners can work with in fact we have some people on our faculty who are working at develop at working at development of apps for various populations. So that's a kind of like the wave of like 
you know, supportive apps and assistive technology for, for people working. For people with physical disabilities, it had a lot to do with peer mentoring was helping them. So having somebody come in and, and like say with so, uh, like somebody who had a spinal cord injury, having somebody who was successful in the workplace with a spinal cord injury come in and kind of give them the ropes. So, and then with people with neurological issues or co especially cognitive issues, instead of more of a group program, a one-on-one -on -one kind of thing. And then with intellectual disabilities, I think a lot of it has to do with education starting earlier um, about work skills. Um, and, and actually throughout all of this, the, the big issue was to talk about it earlier and not wait till somebody like not necessarily like when the um, injury first occurs or something first occurs, but um, earlier in the rehab process, start talking about work skills. Because I, what we found, the longer somebody's out of the workplace, the harder it is to get back into the workplace. And then also certainly employer training um, and all of this uh, as far as like how to accommodate and some employers are better than others. But um, And then um, help, helping people to self-advocate to get back into the workplace. But um, so, so a lot of it has to do with sort of empowering people to, like I said, self-advocate, provide um, supports, pro uh, work with VR counselors, and then uh, assistive technology is like a, a big deal. And not even necessarily expensive, but like, like apps. This yeah. internet thing, you know, I think it's gonna catch on. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I think it'll blow up pretty soon too. Um, yeah, you never know. <laughs> Um, thank you so much, not only for doing that systematic review, but for sharing these kind of guidelines and summary of it. I think sure. in OT, it's, it's, we have the skills working with people who want to do work, but I know for me as a student, sometimes it's hard to know where to start. Um, so having kind right. of a guideline like this is super helpful and definitely right. emphasizes, you know, to me not to be afraid to bring up work skills early in uh, treating someone. No, I was, I, I kind of made the joke at the, I know it's hard to believe I would make a joke, but um, that I made the joke at the state of the science of like, you know, people go, oh, occupational therapy, so do you find people jobs? And this is actually a case where we do. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's good. Uh, I, was, I was thinking maybe we could kind of switch gears a little bit because you also, uh, well, you've also done research on examining childcare adaptations for mothers. Mm -hmm physical disabilities, and what, what did you find were the biggest challenges to completing childcare tasks for people who have a disability? Okay, um, again, um, personal experience and passion have kind of put me into to working. It's not my typical thing to do, but um, here I had the opportunity to work with a really great scientist. Um, her name is Lisa Iazzoni. And she's um, actually a physician with MS, and um, she has done tons of stuff on healthcare access for people with disabilities. So if somebody's interested in that, um, she's a great person to do it with. So when and I cited her a lot in my dissertation. So when I actually knew she was here, it was like I was genuflecting. You know, I was like, please let me do something with you. So she had all this. It was a qualitative study, and she had so she had a lot of these interviews with with mothers with disabilities, and like I mentioned before earlier, my mom had one, so I was even more like passionate about it. So, so there were a couple things that 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 stood out from this from the the interviews um, that that had actually been conducted prior to me being involved with it. 
So what we did is we did sort of a thematic analysis of, of the interviews that had occurred before and kind of put an OT lens on it. And, you know, one of the big issues, unfortunately, has to do with people still thinking that somebody with a disability can't be a good parent. And so you have to overcome some of those attitudinal issues. So a lot of it has to do with supporting um, these mothers with disabilities that they indeed can do it. So a lot of it is just problem solving, which is, I think, one of the key abilities of OTs um, is to be able to problem solve. And the more you do it, the more you can and on and on and on. Um, so it had to do, so the, the big issues that they talked about had to do with night care and feeding, with bathing, with carrying an infant, and in all sorts of like adaptive cribs and changing tables and, and ways to do it. So like with a lot of, a lot of what we do, sometimes our clients are the best people to figure out how to do stuff and they find ways around it. So, so a lot of what they did was, um, at least early on when the babies were young, they did a lot of co-sleeping so that they wouldn't have to like transfer out of the bed and then go and get the kid and that kind of, and the baby and that kind of thing. And then, and then having the, the crib nearby so that again, it didn't take a lot of extra effort to be near the baby. And um, as far as feeding, a lot of it had to do with sort of propping the babies up and like the infant carrier or something. Uh, bathing is like a scary thing for people. Um, for these mothers, so um, so they had um, usually somebody help them, or um, they there um, are some specialized um, ways of um, of bathing, uh, but that is kind of a fearful thing because you know I think that that there were several mothers who had some concerns about bathing. So um, that there are, but there are when the babies are a little bit older, there are like little seats that can fit in and it's a lot safer if like you do it in a sink or something. And then um, carrying, a lot of them use those wraps that, that I mean, all moms use and because that made it easier. I mean, the big thing with, with these moms was, had to do with safety. And so I think OT's role really has to, you know, and, and I think probably home health is the best role, the best way. I mean, a little bit maybe in the hospital, but certainly when they're at home because it's better to see what their environment is but there are there are websites that have like adaptive changing tables and cribs and high chairs you know just getting help at the beginning um, but a lot of what again OT can do is is help with that sort of design of adaptive equipment and, and problem solving with the mom um, about um, how to do things with less effort and increased safety so, um, so yeah, a lot of it just has to do with adaptive techniques and, and problem solving and adaptive equipment that's, and it's not really like equipment equipment, so it's not horribly expensive. And certainly if somebody has somebody, um, in their home that can help with that, but, but in the article, <clears throat> there's a uh, one page that has a lot of suggestions, um, on what the women's experiences were and how they, and, and typical and uh, various diagnoses and how they sort of handled it. So if someone's interested in, in pursuing it more, I would have them look at the article and there's like this really great table that has like all of the different kinds of ways to adapt when you have a baby and you've had a physical disability. That's awesome. Thank you so much. And we'll, we'll be sure to make that article available in the episode description. So listeners should be able to find the, the reference for it. Um, at least. 
Well, thank you so much. I, I really like how you said kind of approaching childcare. I think this could be applied to any uh, OT intervention with kind of a focus of using less effort and increased safety. Uh, so help conserve their effort and also be safe while doing so. Um, those are some great principles to keep in mind. Um, and problems. And problem solving, you said? Yeah, that, that's. I think that's one of the key things in OT is is is, you know, we we become much much more client centered of being like, well, you're the expert on what it is that that being the client uh, about what it is you want to do, and you know your environment the best, and you know have them sort of problem solve with you instead of saying, here's what you should do. Um, but, but, you know, sort of taking that time, which you have a little bit more in home health to do that with, um, of like, okay, what's the best way that you can do this that won't require a lot of energy and that's, that you will feel comfortable and that the baby is safe or the toddler is safe and that kind of thing. So, so I think that that's true for all OT settings, really. Absolutely. I would echo that for sure. I think the more we can collaborate with clients and help them come up with their own solutions uh, uh, as well the more likely they're gonna um, comply with those solutions and apply them to their, their everyday life. And Diane, I heard that you and some students are currently doing some really interesting research at MGH studying sustainability and climate change. Can you tell me more about this topic? Absolutely. So uh, like I said, my, my research sort of is, it, it's kind of, uh, I don't know, on the edge and, uh, and hopefully, we're hoping that um, that this paper, um, it's, it's very close. To, it actually has been accepted with revisions at the Annals of International OT about climate change because it actually <laughs> twice has been rejected from the AOTA conference. And so um, I want your listeners to understand that being rejected from the AOTA conference is something that happens even to people who have like, been practicing for a long time. So it's okay. But yeah, so we decided that I, I think it might have even been a class discussion or something that, you know, how would climate change affect the occupations of, of, of people with and without disabilities, you know? And so, so we decided to go ahead and, and look it up. And again, I pulled a bunch of students um, uh, who were interested in it and um, but I didn't pull them, I asked for volunteer. And um, so we've been working on this for about a year and a half. The kind of goal was, you know, what is OT's role as re with regard to like environmental sustainability or climate change? <clears throat> so we decided to do a scoping review instead of a systematic review because there isn't a whole lot out there. And that's sort of the purpose of a scoping review, sort of that introductory part and sort of making recommendations. Then hopefully a systematic review could be done. So we, you know, searched the literature and, and didn't come up with very much in OT. We came up with a lot in nursing which always seems to have a lot of literature anyway, and a little bit with social work and social work and something else. I can't remember, but there, there's some in OT on in the international basis. So Scandinavia and um, the British OT journal and Australia. So what we did is we sort of took all that and, and again, did a, a thematic analysis of what we saw. And I mean, I, I, th I personally think from my personal opinion that OT has a role in climate in climate change because of you know the effects of climate change and how that disrupts people's occupations and 
and that kind of thing. And, and you know, it's like that, you know, the big E, right? <laughs> the PEOB is like, how, how are all these things, you know, you've got like flooding in the Midwest, you've got, you know, I know you guys in St. Louis had a bunch of it because my son still lives there and I have friends there and um, increased snow and fires and, you know, that's a, it's affecting everyone's life. So, so we decided to go ahead and, and, you know, jump into this. And so what we really found was that OT, we, we think anyway, we're recommending that OT really does have a role to sort of combat a couple of things. And, you know, one of course is advocacy, which is sort of my middle name. (laughs) I I was big on advocacy because uh, there's certainly a mental health um, part to you know all this stuff that's happening people are being displaced I'm sure being in the Midwest you know the tornadoes they knock everything down and just I mean I, I know the flooding affected people's ability to work and um, you know their homes are moved out of their homes there's like mental health issues there's resilience issues there's even PTSD that can happen because of that and it does you know homes and businesses are are affected by that um, certainly farming has been affected by that. You know, you've got your droughts, you've got your floods, sometimes one right after another. But the, but the big thing is that a lot of, you know, the, the reports that come out about it really talk about that, you know, obviously it's human occupation or human activity that's causing climate change. And what can people do to change that in order to affect climate change? So a lot of it has to do with encouraging people to do occupations in a more green way, environmentally friendly way. And, and kind of looking at it as some issues, sorry, (laughs) of um, occupational justice of, you know, let's make the planet survive like for your generation too. (laughs) Um, There are some, there is some literature that talks about some conceptual models that fit in with that. There's some articles that use MOHO and and, um, then there's some more like global articles that can come out of that more occupational justice kind of things. Um, Woofit has a position paper that talks about um, OT and climate change and and promoting um, green lifestyles. And then also um, um, consulting with again, businesses or people about how to, to look at uh, the built environment in a more, ex- in a more climate-friendly way, as well as, uh, again, encouraging sustainable human activity and encouraging, like, you know, as far as, you know, when we look at health in the broadest, the broadest way that's, you know, looking at what can people do, like active travel methods, like walking or biking that are low carbon and how that's good for their health and also good for the planet. And then also looking at ways of practicing, that's kind of the last thing that we looked at, of of how um, we can practice in a more um, green way, like things like telehealth, as opposed to being in the office all the time and, you know, driving to work. Having, so like different service methods, like again, apps or telehealth or low carbon ways of like, reusing and recycling and and job sharing and that kind of thing that that will put less of a carbon imprint on so those are some of the things that we found and then you know we've sort of made some recommendations and then hopefully sometime next year it'll be out in the annals of international ot 
and hopefully on my goal is to like present this in Paris in 2022. But you know, the limitations obviously were that there weren't, there wasn't much out there from OT. So we're hoping to change that. <laughs> so, so we figured this would be a good start. Yeah, it, it sounds like it. And thank you so much for sharing all those recommendations on how OTs can really take on and fulfill a role in sustainability and climate change. I think it's something that a lot of practitioners may be on board with, but really aren't sure where to start. Um, so I'm sure right. the paper and, and your recommendations can, can give them a, a jumping off point. I think it'll be really interesting to see how, how this research progresses and how it's received. And uh, I hope you do present it in Paris in 2022. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> One thing you, you mentioned in relation to this research you've done were some of the kind of increased natural disasters that are going on um, in the country. And I noticed you've also done some research on emergency preparedness of people with uh, disabilities. And I wanted to ask, why is emergency preparedness an important area for occupational therapy practitioners to consider and have in mind? Well, I've done two articles um, on emergency preparedness. We did one, um, Steve Nataro and I did um, in the mid-2000s, and then we did a follow-up one uh, to see if there had been any changes. And then we also split it up by type of disability, like physical disability versus a mental health disability, and, and looked in to see like general preparedness. And, and I think the two kind of go together, realizing that there are these natural disasters that occur and, and can affect people's, well, safety and ability to um, perform their occupation. Also, what I found a lot in my, in my research had to do with that people with disabilities are affected more by these natural, like Hurricane Katrina was a big one. You know, there were a lot of people who were who are wheelchair users that were stuck. And if you think about a lot of the issues, that a lot of the concerns of our clients, if they had to, I mean, it's tough enough for anyone to figure out what they're gonna do in a disaster. Um, and I think it's just the population. So this is, so how does it fit into OT? In an advocacy kind of way, and also in a way to help clients prepare and then potentially after the disaster, but it's really more the stuff that I, I talk about has to do more with preparation. And this is something you could do in an outpatient or a home health type of situation. So it has to do with um, providing um, guidance to clients on how to prepare for disaster. And, and to be honest, when I looked at when I did this research, and if you read the papers, no one is actually really that prepared. I think we just have this idea that, oh, that's not going to happen to us. And then some big disaster happens and, and then you're unprepared. So I know of a couple of people who have their emergency kits if things happen, but, but a lot of people don't. So it's not like there's this huge difference between people who are, have disabilities and people who don't because people just aren't prepared. But, but what OTs can do for people with or without disabilities is just sort of advocate for them to be on on sort of the as plans are made in communities i think a lot of times people don't take into consideration some of the additional issues like you know what if the power goes out and somebody's you know needs oxygen or or you know what if our our emergency shelter is accessible things like that making sure that people who actually have 
these disabilities are part of the planning process. So again, that sort of empowerment part and the advocacy for that empowerment, and then working with families um, on how best to like respond to emergency situation and making sure that they have the supplies they need because maybe they'll need medications, maybe they'll need some of the other equipment that, that we have that we might have prescribed to them um, and making sure that you know you, nobody wants a disaster but making sure that if indeed that does occur that they're prepared. Awesome those are some great recommendations and really interesting research. It's um, very encouraging and kind of uh, uplifting for me as a student to hear you share your diverse research and your diverse experience. It kind of gives me confidence to know that, yeah, OTs can do anything and everything as, as long as we, we go for it. Uh, so thank you very much for all that. You're welcome. And let's see, I think I just have one last question for you to wrap it up. Okay. Um, this okay. is, I call it the golden nugget segment. I ask all of my guests this question and that's, okay. If you could tell practitioners one thing, what would it be? Okay, so the one thing is to listen. I, I think, you know, to listen to, to your clients, to sort of listen to what they're saying and not, not be so focused on the sort of physical, but sort of listen to what their issues are because they know the most. Uh, I mean, they, they know themselves better than you. So I think the listening and then sort of looking beyond the obvious, um, so patterns and things like that and, and asking questions. And so, so it's that therapeutic use of self. By the time students graduate, they have this whole wealth of knowledge, um, truly. And I have to remind them that that's the case. <laughs> um, but it's a matter of kind of slowing down and listening to what your clients are actually really saying and, and helping them solve problems and, you know, look at patterns and provide recommendations. So that's my nugget. That is a great nugget. Thank you so much for sharing. You're very welcome. And thanks so much for this interview and for agreeing to be on the show. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to How to OT. Tune in next time for another episode where we bring accessible and consumable research straight to you. I'm on vacation. If you don't like your life, then should go and change it hey, hey, hey. i'm on vacation every single day cuz i love my occupation hey, hey, hey. i'm on vacation every single day every every single day hey, i'm on vacation every single day cuz i love my occupation hey, hey, hey. i'm on vacation every single day every every single day Sour like a lemon tree I'm just smiling down upon my enemies Do the shit and love it on a daily Say you hate your job but you'll never leave Never leave but that it wasn't easy But right now I'm living breezy Build this engine from the ground up Now my hands they ain't too greasy Feel me? Hey, I'm on vacation I'm so thankful for everything Rejuvenating my inner light as I work hard for all I need Open arms, embracing life and all the weight you gave to me I work, it pays off, I'm happy now, it's paying me Close my eyes, sometimes I feel as if I blow away I love the life, I live and enjoy the ride along the way I'll make a living out of living, yeah that's what I say I got one life to live and I wouldn't live in no other way Hey, hey, hey I'm on vacation 
single day Cause I love my occupation Hey, I'm on vacation Every single day, every, every single day Hey, I'm on vacation Every single day, cause I love my occupation Hey, I'm on vacation should go and change it if you don't like your life then you should go and change it if you don't like your life then you should go and change it